Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. My addiction is, I don't know what MB is. My addiction is MB with porn and fantasy. I hid it for many years. As to disclosure, can you talk about how much detail to disclose and when and where? I have watched you comment about details, but I'd like some more information. So I would not do disclosure, period, unless there was a professional involved. Let me just say that I didn't see anything about seeing a therapist, a CSAT. I didn't see anything about working with people who have done disclosure. So I would not approach this this, um, activity without the support of people who understand it, have been through it, and per, sorry, and preferably professionals who know what they're doing. This is rife, rife for destroying everything you've tried to heal. Um, I will say though, I will answer your question, although I really know that if you're working with a professional and you were doing this together with guidance, you wouldn't be asking this question because you already have the answer. So um, the answer is, if I were reading a disclosure to my spouse, it would be an inventory. It would be, I have seen this many sex workers since we've been together. I have spent this much money on seeing those sex workers. I had an affair during these dates and this is who I had the affair with. Um, I might say something like, um, I had sensual massages or sexual massages. There was no oral sex. Um, I did have sex unprotected with my affair partner. Um, this is how long I had the affair. This is, you know, that kind of thing. I would not ever say, this is how large their breasts were. This is how the kind of sex we had. I would not encourage, nor would any of us professionals really encourage graphic details. How many times, how often, where, who they were, you know, how much was spent. Sure. Spouses need to know how long has this nightmare been in my life and how bad did it get? But what they don't need to know is the graphic details, even though your spouses will want them. Because if you ever are gonna have sex with us again, if you're ever gonna make love with us, if you're ever going to heal your trauma spouses, then you can't have these images and thoughts in your head. Um, I cannot unsay something that's very graphic and you will never forget it. When we're having sex in the future, you might be thinking, well, I don't have that, that this other person had. And he told me that he's into that. So, you know, you'll be out the window in your head, leaving the room or obsessing about how, if you guys don't do this, why would they want to do it with that person? It just doesn't work that way. So yes, um, inventory, no apologies, um, a list of things that partners will then create questions about. If you ask me about something graphic, I will say, um, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to hurt you further. So details, yes, graphic, no, no body parts, no body sizes, no uh, particular sexual behaviors beyond very clinical. In, in an, I'll just say this, in a disclosure, I use words like penis, um, vagina, breasts. You know, I use very broad clinical terms. I don't say anything graphic in my language or anything triggering in my language. I simply say it the way it was without being graphic. Okay. Uh, next question. What do you suggest when a CSAT, a certified sex addiction therapist, a sponsor and the spouse all disagree on a particular situation? 
Uh, okay, so the addict just had a moment. And oh, by the way, by asking me, you're now going to get a fourth opinion. So I just want to say, and if it's different than the other three, now you're going to have four. So you're going to have to pick one, and it may not be the one you like. So I'll do my best. Uh, the addict just had a moment of objectification. And what that means is I'm walking with my spouse, who is a sex addict, and they notice somebody on the street. And I can see it in their eyes, they objectified them. Okay. The therapist says it was objectification and not handled well in the moment, and that it needs to be reported to the spouse's inner circle behavior. I disagree. The coach says it was objectification, but handled well and should not be brought up to the spouse. I agree. And the spouse says it was handled well, but it needs to be reported. I disagree. So let me just go through them. Um, for the therapist, yes, it is objectification, and no, it wasn't handled well in the moment if that person didn't reach out and call someone or do so, or you know, get in their car and drive off, or if they lingered, if they hung around, if they moved toward it instead of away from it. No, it was not handled well in the moment. Does it need to be reported as inner circle? No. Can you imagine if my sobriety was dependent on, on objectifying? That would mean any time, do you know that we have lustful thoughts every 15 seconds? <laughs> Maybe 10 if you're a man. I mean, there is healthy sexuality. I am gonna see people. I am going to notice them. I don't need to pursue them. I don't need to talk to them. I don't need to find their friend and see where they live, but I will absolutely as a human being notice other people and objectify them. That's human. And to say that I'm going to eliminate that in my recovery is not rational. I'm going to see people. I'm going to objectify them. If it gets really hot and heavy for me in my head, I need to go seek help. So it, this is, I would never myself, going back to the first question we had tonight, put objectifying other people in my inner circle. I'm going to do it if, because I'm human. And if I had to put in my inner circle, I would never be sober. So it is not something I would put on in the inner circle. That's not correct. I also would not report it to my spouse. Spouses, if you hear every single time a sexual thought crosses in our minds, you will never be at peace and we will never get any peace. What I need to tell you, my spouse, is if I have had a slip, if I have crossed that inner circle boundary and I no longer have six months or eight months or a year, I am starting on day one. You need to know about it. That is absolutely my job to tell you if I am starting my time again. Um, I may not like the result. You may not like hearing it, but I have to be honest with you and truthful about this. However, if I do something in my middle circle, like look at someone too long or drive through the wrong neighborhood, that's something for my sponsor. That's something for my therapist. That is the stuff that I need to work on, but not bring to you every time it happens because it will drive you insane. Um, I will have sexual thoughts. I will have sexual feelings. I will look around. That's human. If I told you every single time I did that, we would never heal our relationship and I would feel like a failure all the time. So let me ask them again. Answer them again. I objectify something. The therapist said it was objectification. Yes and not handled well in the moment, that's unknown to us. Um, and that it needed to be reported to the spouse's inner circle behavior, I completely disagree. The coach says it was objectification, but handled well and should not be brought up to the spouse. I agree with that. Don't bring it up unless it's a slip. And the spouse says it was handled well, yet it needs to be reported, and I would disagree with that too. We need to report our bottom line behaviors to you. If we, we cannot report every time a middle circle behavior happens, or there's no healing the relationship, you might as well throw it out the window. However, I know that you spouses want to know everything. I know that. 
And I know after all these years of doing this work that you believe that it's just, you need to know this. And if you could just find out that, and you'll be at peace if you just knew this and then that, And but it never ends because what you're looking for, you're not going to find in your questions. You're never going to be at peace with what we did. You're never going to forget about it. And finding out this answer or that answer or looking at this or that is never going to put you at peace. However, you do it anyway, because that's the natural part of your grieving is to try to understand the extent of the problem, try to manage the problem. I get all of that. Um, however, there are parts of the recovery process that simply belong to us, and we are responsible for working on them, being accountable to them and healing them. And while you may want to hear every detail and know every piece, it is a boundary and it is a healthy boundary that I'm not going to tell myself every time I struggle. Okay. And your spouses won't like that. They know that. Um, okay, uh, back to the first question. I don't think this is the same person. Uh, if he loves me, how could he do this to me? How about a husband who does the recovery work consistently, drops out, doesn't do the recovery activities, um, and he says it's all too overwhelming for him? I've asked him to move out. Okay, this is fantastic because you're not saying, if you did those things, how could you love me? And the things are the acting out. You know, what you spouses are saying is, if you love me, how could you have this affair? How could you see these sex workers? How could you look at all that porn? Who, what kind of person who loves me would do all that? We covered that. But this is something completely different. What this is, is how you get to recovery, which is bottom line. I have to do these things, whether I like it or not, because if I love you, here's where it does apply. If I love you, I'm going to help you see my commitment to healing. And by going to therapy and going to groups and getting an accountability partner and having a sponsor, that's how I work on the process. It's also how I prove to you that I'm committed to our relationship healing. So if you do not see me doing these things or you hear me say things like, which makes me laugh, by the way, um, it's too overwhelming for him. I, that's a laugh line, right? Like how overwhelming is it for every one of you spouses to have your lives annihilated in terms of what we've done to you in the relationship? And then poor baby, it's too overwhelming for him to go to some meetings and talk to a therapist. I would ask him to move out. <laughs> So I want you to understand the difference, which is when I'm in my insanity and acting out, that is not a sign of loving you or not loving you. That's a sign of my insanity. When I am working on this and active and present and trying to heal it, if I stop doing those things and I complain about the work of recovery being too difficult or too distracting or too overwhelming, well, it wasn't too distracting, overwhelming for me to have sex with all these people. So it probably isn't so distracting, overwhelming for me to do the things that it takes to recover. And if I don't do those things, you need to kick me out. By the way, I wrote a book for this man. It's called Out of the Doghouse, a relationship saving guide for men caught cheating. And I suggest you buy the book and throw it at him because he obviously has no clue how to restore your trust or restore the relationship. He still is more invested in how he feels and what he's doing rather than the relationship. So yes, change the locks. See, spouses, I'm on your side, but I got to articulate it. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't, someone asked, do I have experience with sexual energies, transmutation, don't know anything about it, never experienced it, can't help you with that one, sorry. Um, I don't understand, someone said, how non-sexual childhood trauma becomes sex addiction. What types of non-sexual trauma manifest as sex addiction and why? So let me just say this to start. 
there is no one on the planet who can tell you why uh, definitively why I have a sex problem, sex addiction problem, you have a gambling addiction problem, you have an eating disorder. We have hints about this from family histories. We have hints about it from both DNA and the actual lived history. But what we don't have is, oh, you have this gene or this happened to you and therefore you're gonna become this kind of addict. We don't have an answer to that. That said, having seen a thousand or more sex addicts and written 10 books about them, I can tell you the answer. The number one issue that drives sexual acting out, and I think actually most addictions, is neglect. Neglect. We become so desperate to be loved that we will do anything to be loved or to feel loved because we grew up in very empty or very difficult environments. I did not learn I was valuable where I grew up because it was more important to attend to my family members, my caregivers. They were very troubled, very sick, and they needed more of me than they could give each other. So what I'm saying is I was profoundly neglected emotionally and sometimes physically. Now I went to a nice school. I had nice clothes. I was always fed, but I could get locked in my room for 18 hours you know, because my parents were busy, um, I could get ignored for days because they were busy or whatever that is. Or emotionally, I can ne get neglected because the needs of my caregiver exceed mine. Um, my mentally ill mom, her needs always come first. You know, God bless her. She had a horrible life and I feel terrible for her and I'm very sad at her passing, but I got this from her. <laughs> she was so intensely enmeshed with me and yet neglecting me at the same time, enmeshed, in other words, doing everything she could to get attention and support from me, but actually not focusing on me, her child, except as an extension of her, that left me neglected. Now, maybe I learned to rub myself, um, touch my body to comfort myself. Maybe I learned to rub myself on my crib. Maybe, we don't actually know, there are sexual related feelings because children do, it does feel good down there when you're a little kid. It is a way of soothing and calming yourself. And I can imagine that that might've happened in various ways to feel better in an impossible situation where there was no one there for you. Um, so I might've learned fantasy and sexual fantasy as a way to space out and make myself feel better when I was locked in that room for 18 hours with no one to come get me. I can I remember looking out the window, thinking about the cars that were going by, checking off boxes. I knew a Chevy Impala from a Ford LTD at night because that's how I occupied myself when I was feeling so lonely was uh, compulsive behavior that was in fantasy. And I'm absolutely certain when I found sex, it jumped right in there and became the primary fantasy. But no one molested me, not really. Uh, I was used emotionally and I was neglected. I never learned that I had value. I never learned that I had worth. I know how to put it on and look like, you know, I'm amazing, but inside, very little self-esteem because that comes about through being esteemed. At some point I learned, and I think most sex addicts learn that I can get what feels like validation, what feels like attention in a controllable way when I'm doing it with a stranger because strangers can never let me down, never disappoint me, never abandon me like I was as a child. What we do as addicts is we seek out controllable situations that mimic our needs being met. I feel important, I feel special, I feel wanted when I'm having sex with a stranger, but I don't seek out anyone that I really love for that. Don't you spouses understand that we're terrified of you? 
don't you understand that um, we think if we are intimate with you, uh, not think, it's not conscious, but our experience is through early life that if we reach out, if we try to get attention, if we need things, it's not going to be met. We try over and over again as kids, hello, I'm here. It doesn't happen. And then we learn, oh, reaching out to other people doesn't work. They don't attend to me. I'm just stuck with all this longing. So why bother reaching out to other people if it's not going to matter and I'm going to end up hurting anyway? We give up on people because we believe that deeply meaningful relationships will eventually end up with us in pain. This is addicts. So we choose controllable situations like sex addiction, where we can feel wanted, desired, and important, but that's all really superficial, but it feels like it works. By the way, how do I know it doesn't work? Because I keep doing it over and over again, and I don't really get fulfilled with love and support. Turning to you as my spouse, that's where I really might get hurt emotionally. That's where I might feel abandoned, neglected, or used like I did when I was a child, and I never want to feel that way again. So I will compartmentalize my life where I am in control in my relationship because I know all the stuff that you don't. And when I'm not happy in our relationship, I don't turn to you and say, this is what's going on or, or let me tell you what I need. I just let that be and we're superficial. And then I go over here and I have something superficial with let's say a sex worker or an affair. In other words, sex addicts piece their lives together with intimacy over here and sexuality over there. And that keeps us safe. Um, and that's compartmentalization. And that's how we, uh, in adult life, act out our trauma. You know, one of the questions, I do consultations, you might, guys might know, Tammy sets them up for me. And I will spend 90 minutes to two hours sitting with you couples, trying to figure out what your next steps are. And, um, and, and it's almost always the case that, um, what do I want to say about your spouses? Oh, that, um, well, it's almost always the case that there isn't that kind of trauma. Um, so anyway, I want to go on. There's a lot of stuff I want to say about this, but there's so many questions. Okay. So someone says, I am a chem sex addict. And let me just say what that means. That means that this person simultaneously or in relationship to abuses drugs and alcohol chem and sexual behavior. So someone who abuses meth and has sex at the same time, or they drink and they get really loaded and then they have sex with anyone who comes along. This is a combination of drugs and alcohol and sex. So the person and people struggle with both. And one of the issues and one of the reasons we created Seeking Integrity, which is our program out here, is for a population of men who struggle with this because it is absolutely my experience that I if we don't deal with the sexual issues, you're going to relapse on drugs and alcohol. It doesn't matter how good a job you do in treatment for drug and alcohol work. If you don't get to the sexual issues underneath, you're going to go out and use again. Um, it's unconscious. It's just what's going to happen. And so that's why we exist in part. We exist for sex addicts, but we also exist for people who have not gotten to the underlying issues that drive their addiction to drugs and alcohol, which is often trauma and stuff like that. That was a lot. Let me answer the question. I am a sex chem sex addict with six months sober, and I have difficulty setting boundaries. How do I set boundaries when I have immense shame? Well, how do I set? I am a chem sex addict, and I have difficulty setting boundaries. Okay. How do I set boundaries when, you, when I have so much shame because of the cheating I did? How do you get a sense of what are the right boundaries when you have guilt and shame? Or your partner guilts or shames you into agreeing to something because of cheating? 
Okay, so this is these are very good questions. They're kind of being asked in certain ways uh, in a couple of different examples, because really what's being asked here is um, for the addict, what do I get to do and set up for myself that is mine, that my spouse can give feedback on, but that I get to decide whether that's my circle plan. Here's an example. Um, my wife wants me to go to Sexaholics Anonymous meetings because she hears in her group that the SA meetings are really tough. But I've been attending Sex Addicts Anonymous, SAA, and I have a lot of friends there and I have a sponsor there and I feel really good about that program. Do I have to go to SA because that's what my spouse wants? You know, there's two ways to look at that. Look at that. Number one, could you go to SA once a week and would you get something out of it while keeping SAA as your primary program? Or would your spouse feel heard? Yes. You have to do it? No. Um, this is your boundary. This is your recovery. It has nothing to do with acting out. And it isn't really even focused on your relationship. It's focused on you and your healing. So you get to make those decisions. When a spouse says, and we hear this a lot, um, it's seeking integrity. We're setting up an aftercare plan. We're telling you what and where you need to do things when you get home. So let's say that we set up that you need to, as an addict, go to groups and meetings four days a week in therapy or whatever. Many spouses I've worked with will come back and say, well, wait a minute, you weren't home four days a week because you were acting out and now you're not home four days a week because you're in recovery. Um, what's the difference? I'm still all alone. You need to be home you know, these two nights a week and you can go do that other stuff the other two nights a week. Well, there's a boundary, right? Because my spouse is absolutely right. I was not around when, when I was acting out and, and they were had all of the family uh, responsibility. And now I'm not home as much because I'm working on sobriety and they still are carrying some of the responsibility more than they should. But on the other end, on the other hand, my recovery is the priority for us to have a relationship. So I have to, at least for a period of time, put that first by getting it solid. You may not agree. You may say, I deserve to have you home two nights a week. You may be right. And that might mean that I have to put my meetings onto Saturday afternoons or Sunday mornings so that I am home to meet your needs. However, I have to go to the meetings. I have to go to as many as they told me to, to attend. So when it directly relates to my recovery, that, that's in my court. If my spouse sees things that I'm doing or learns about things like something in my plan that they don't like, we should talk about it. I want to hear everything my spouse has to say that they like or they don't like about my process. I may or may not agree or decide to do it, but I want to know. And then I'm going to run it by other people. Um, spouses aren't guilting you into anything. You need to hear that, okay? If you didn't feel guilty, it would go right over your head. You feel terrible about what you did and your spouse is shoving it in your face as they should. Because, you know, if people who do bad things deserve to feel bad about it. And we did bad things and got away with them and felt perfectly fine for a long time. It is good for us addicts to see the pain that we have caused someone we love. It is good for us to see how hurt they are. We don't do it to hurt them or to cause them pain, but it's right in front of us. And if we feel guilty, it's because we created circumstances under which we would feel guilty. So the only thing I don't like in this uh, particular question is the idea that my partner makes me feel guilty. No, they tell you what their experience is. They tell you what they feel and what they're going through. If you feel guilty, maybe there's something for you to look at. Um, finally, I think the boundaries that you and your partner are going to set really would be a good thing to do with another couple who's been through this with uh, maybe um, 
her therapist, your therapist, a couple's therapist, you're not necessarily going to get this right, especially at six months sober. So get somebody else involved. Um, you know, I do consultations, call Tammy and get one, find some professional who can help guide these questions. By the way, I just want to say before we stop, um, things that are useful to you that are free. Um, I have a podcast, we have almost a million downloads. It's called Sex, Love and Addiction. Um, it helps people not act out when they're driving the car. It helps spouses get through the day because they're listening to me talk to professionals about intimacy and betrayal, sex, love, and addiction. That's free. I have a blog on psychology today. I have for eight years called Sex and Love in the Digital Age. There's a lot of information there. If you go to sexandrelationshiphealing.com, sex and relationshiphealing.com. That's where all of our free groups are and free lecture series and all that stuff. And beyond that, if you want to find your way to treatment or other kinds of work, it's seekingintegrity.com. If you write Tammy, if you want a therapist, you want to know where there's a group in your area, you want to learn more about treatment, you want to find out how to figure out what book you should read. If there's a technical thing like that, write Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com. T-A-M-I at Seeking Integrity. Tammy will send you a list of therapists in your area. She'll recommend books for spouses. She'll encourage a group that you can go to for free. That is what Tammy is for. Um, she would say that's what she is for, is to be a, a complete resource. And she helps clients find their way to treatment. So I'm going to answer one more question because I got to. So let me see. I'm going to pick it, though. Uh, okay. I like this question. Um, hello, Dr. Rob. Hi. I am a sex addict and used to, and I used to frequently and genuinely compliment my wife about how she looked or food she made or work she had done. But after discovery six months ago, my compliments, though genuine, seem to have an opposite or no effect. Is this normal? Or should I stop complimenting as it is having the opposite effect? And for how long? So I think, number one, I haven't answered your question, but I think this is something you should talk about with your spouse. You know, what is wrong with your sitting down and saying, you know, since this all came out, I've noticed that you really object or don't want to hear anything nice I have to say. And I feel like maybe I shouldn't be saying it or maybe it makes you more upset. What is going on when I compliment you about something what do I need to know? And then be quiet and listen. I know what your spouse is going to say. Uh, I can tell you now they're going to say, I don't want to hear that crap because you used to compliment me before when you were doing all that stuff. And I felt really good about it. And now that I know what was really going on when you're complimenting me, that you were lying and cheating and doing all this other stuff, I don't really have, I don't really trust anything you have to say. So the spouse is reminded um, of your cheating because they don't want to hear how great they are, how wonderful they are. They want to see you contrite with humility and working on yourself, not, oh, you're so great because they're not going to believe it. If we were kind and loving before, we're not going to be, they're not going to buy into kind and loving now until they trust us again. And trust can take a year to rebuild provided you're going to meetings, you're going to therapy, you're working, you've done disclosure and you're doing this work. So I would put that away and say to your spouse, I would love to be complimentary, but you let me know when you think you're going to feel safe with that. Because you're right, it is not a good idea. By the way, I want to say to you addicts uh, related to this before we go, if you're in the first year of recovery, do not say the following things to someone you love or are married to. Do not say, I'm really sorry. Do not say, please forgive me. 
Do not say, I didn't mean it. Do not say, well, I'm just an addict. I didn't know how to do it differently. Don't say any of those things. Um, this is not the time for you to ask for forgiveness, to give apologies, to justify what you did. This is your time to listen and to do your best to follow the path that you've been given to heal. Every time one of you spouses, one of our spouses hears, please forgive me. I didn't mean it. Oh, you look so great. They're thinking, what a bunch of lies. So don't do it because it just feels like we're trying to get them. They feel controlled. They feel like you're just trying to get me into a place where I'm going to forgive you or whatever. And it doesn't matter where we are coming from. They don't trust us and they don't have any respect or belief in what we have to say. So yes, stop the compliments, stop the apologies and just show up with humility and prove to your spouse that you want them to feel good, not with compliments, but with the behavior you exhibit toward recovery. Um, go to four meetings a week. Um, invite your sponsor over for dinner, show your spouse that you're actively doing things to heal. That will make them feel a lot better than all the compliments in the world. It may even lead to them beginning to believe them at some point. Folks, my name is Dr. Rob Weiss. I am so glad to be here with you. I will be here next uh, Monday night and every Monday night answering questions about these issues, sex, love, and addiction. You know, we have a whole website. We do multiple groups like this every week with different speakers. I really invite you to enter our world. If you want a direct referral to a group, to a therapist, to treatment, to a book, write TAMI at seekingintegrity.com and Tammy will be back next week. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. One more thing, addicts, addicts, make sure you plan out your time for the holiday. We are very likely to act out when we are looking at a three-day weekend with no plans. Don't just plan Thanksgiving Day. Make plans for Friday and Saturday. When we have things to be accountable to, we are much less likely to act out. And one of our primary triggers as addicts to acting out is unstructured time alone. So if you're looking at a holiday weekend with any, any large period of unstructured time alone, you're in trouble. Structure it. Make You don't have to be doing something. You can just say, I'm going to start this movie at 9 o'clock. I'm going to call my sponsor, tell them I'm starting it at 9, and I'll call them at, at uh, 10.30 when I'm done watching the movie. You have held yourself accountable. Being accountable to recovery is how we stay sober. Having long periods of time with nothing planned is how we act out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.